I'm so unhappy. What'll I do? Long for somebody who will sympathize with me. And I'm so tired living alone. I'd like to wake all night and cry. And nobody loves me, that's why. All by myself in the morning. All by myself in the night. I sit alone with the table and the chair. So unhappy there, playing solitaire. All by myself, I got lonely. Watching the clock on the shelf. I'd love to rest the weary head on somebody's shoulder. I hate to grow older all by myself. That is Eugen Daddy playing Irving Berlin. Hello. Thank you for being here. I am thrilled today to be interviewing Malena DiMartini. She is an expert in treating dogs with separation anxiety. She is the author of the book, Treating Separation Anxiety in Dogs a book I've recommended so many times that uh, I think I should be getting a commission on the royalties. (laughs) Um, Malena is a superstar in the world of dog training, so we might as well consider this a celebrity interview (laughs) on an important topic, the topic of helping dogs learn to be okay being left alone. But before I play you this interview, I did want to mention that we have been offering free 30-minute virtual sessions with clients. The School for the Dogs trainers have been doing this since quarantine started, but we are only going to be offering these sessions for one more week. So if you have yet to sign up, for a free 30-minute session with one of our certified trainers, you absolutely should. We can help you with problems that you've been facing during quarantine or maybe things you were wanting to deal with before quarantine. We can also just help you find some fun things to do with your dog during this time that you're very likely spending more time together than ever. But that offer ends next Friday, May 15th, so definitely book now. And also, if you're not aware, we've been offering free daily webinars, which you can learn more about at schoolforthedogs.com webinars. They've been on a wide array of topics. We've gotten really great feedback, and we also have the replays available for limited time at that same link, schoolforthedogs.com slash webinars. So if you missed one, it is most likely there so you can catch up. This interview I did with Malena is an abridged version of a webinar we did earlier this week, which I will link to in the show notes. So the way I've edited this interview, it starts with a bit of a soliloquy from me <laughs> about how I discovered Milena, but you will hear from her if you can stick through my little story for the first couple minutes. 
And I should preface it also by saying that the case that I'm referring to here was probably the most serious separation anxiety case I had come in contact with at that point, and also probably one of the last separation anxiety cases because, like many trainers, I am not a fan of dealing with dogs who have separation anxiety, which comes up in this interview, why so many dog trainers shy away from dealing with this problem. But I believe it is such an important problem to address, and I think one of the reasons why Milena is such a superstar is she has tackled this kind of gooey, yucky issue that dog trainers don't like to handle with so much grace and has given so many dog trainers a roadmap, so many dog trainers and so many dog owners a roadmap of how to deal with this problem that can be so terrible and terrifying both for dogs and the people who love them. Hi, my name is Annie Grossman, and I'm a dog trainer. This podcast is brought to you by School for the Dogs, a Manhattan-based facility I own and operate along with some of the city's finest dog trainers. During this podcast, we'll be answering your questions, geeking out on animal behavior, discussing pet trends, and interviewing industry experts. Welcome to School for the Dogs podcast. Malena, I want to tell you how I first discovered you, and then I want to hear your background, how you got into dog training. But I just wanted to share that the first time I, I guess I saw you speak, I think it was at Clicker Expo in Washington State, I think in 2013. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. That was a long time ago. And I was so just excited and inspired by your talk, which was about separation anxiety. And at the time, I had been working with a client with a senior rescue dog who was just very stressed out, kind of like hardly eating and just a really difficult case and a very frustrated owner. And we had, you know, gotten up to maybe leaving the dog alone for 20 seconds. And I just could tell she was having a hard time and I was having a hard time and I was really inspired by your talk. And I remember, the reason I remember it was in Washington State particularly because it was this long plane ride home. I remember just sort of like meditating on your talk and the case with Kate the whole time and, and you know, saying to Kate, like, I really want to help this client. And, you know, like, I just, I feel so empathetic for dogs who experience this kind of anxiety. And I really like, maybe this is like what my specialty could be. I was just like, so turned on. And I wrote the client from the plane and said, I've been thinking about you and I want to be there to help. And I understand, you know, how much it can mean to just have a coach when you're dealing with separation anxiety Yeah. and, and, you know, like, let's figure out how we can do this together. And she lived near NYU. So I was like, you know, we can find some students maybe could even help and be with your dog Perfect. and have to leave. And, and I didn't hear back until a few days later. And I, I, she wrote back and she was like, your method is too slow. I'm going to use a shock collar. Oh, <laughs> and, that's, I, was so, I was waiting for the inspirational moment. Oh. No, and I just felt so deflated. And of course, the punchline is like six months later. I mean, punchline, it's like such a sad story, but it's... <laughs> 
punchline was six months later, she wrote, she's like, hey, I don't know if you remember me, but my dog like is trying to bite me now whenever I come near him. <laughs> it's like, oh, I could have predicted this, this future. Anyway, yeah. um, so all of that is to say that I think separation anxiety is such an important thing to address. And I appreciate that you break it down so much. And I can't tell you how many clients I've had. I, I did not go on to specialize in separation anxiety, but I so appreciate that to those who do. And I tell so many of my clients over the years, I've told so many people to buy your book because I think while it can be so useful to have a dog trainer help you and really be there every step of the way. If you're dealing with separation anxiety, it's expensive. And so I always tell people first things first, before you go for the one-on-one attention um, is this book and see what you could do. And let's go from there. So all that is to say that I have so much respect for your work and I would love to hear how you first got into dog training. Really quick. I want to address that. Um, It really is my goal, my mission, my passion to get the word out there so that dogs don't end up in the hands of the shock collar trainers like that. Right. It is a slow process, but if we can normalize that for people, say this is why it's a slow process because your dog is experiencing a panic attack when left alone. I mean, could you go, you know, if you were having panic attacks and, you know, anxiety and depression and you went and decided to go and see a a counselor or a therapist, could you say, I'd like this fixed in a week, please? You know, I mean, like you could, and they'd be like, "Uh, you're in the wrong place right now. And so it it takes a while to deal with fears and phobias and anxiety issues. Uh, And and it's a big ask because when you think about the culture we live in, we live in a pop a pill and fix it world. Yeah, we do. We do a disservice to dogs when we don't, or really to anybody. <laughs> to anybody, any any breathing being, yes. When we don't first talk about how we can change the environment. But anyway. But anyway, uh, so I, I actually was in corporate America for a really long time and worked as a statistician. So I have that whole, you know, one side of my brain and the other side of my brain thing and, you know, the mathematical side and then the the very creative and and sort of compassionate side. And I won't get into the nitty gritty of the story, but I will say this. I had a beautiful dog, a dog named Maverick. May he forever, ever be my little angel that looks over me from the heavens. And um, he, he died as a result of my insufficient training. You know, like many people, I did not understand that positive reinforcement was, I I didn't even know it existed. And I was using a a punishment-based trainer to help me train him. And the one thing that he was unable to help me with was a recall. We could not install a recall on my dog. And I wasn't using an e-collar or anything like that. But we just, you know, he he just was willy-nilly about his recall. And then finally, the trainer that I was working with said, okay, we're going to start using these throw chains. This is sort of way back in the day, right? This is, gosh, almost 30 years ago. And he was like, we're going to, if he doesn't come, we're going to throw these heavy chains at him. 
Why would a dog come to you if you threw heavy chains at him? My God, how was I so, so not understanding and seeing that? But as soon as he threw that first chain, I was like, I'm out. This is not okay. This is wow. really inhumane. And so I thought to myself, well, he'll just never learn to recall. So he'll be on a leash for the rest of his life kind of thing. And, you know, or a long line or whatever. And, and one day I had a bunch of guests over to my house and I had big signs everywhere. Do not leave gate open. Do not leave gate open. Dog may get out, you know, this kind of thing. But of course you were attempting to train the people. I was attempting unsuccessfully. And we, mm -hmm. as we all know, management is never a hundred percent. There's always a management failure, no matter how hard we try, right? Mm -hmm. Someone just says, oh, I opened the gate and I forgot my purse back in the car. I'm just going to run over there and grab it. And that's all it takes for a dog to slip out. He slipped out. I noticed it almost immediately. I called and called and called, and his recall was actually the opposite of a recall. It was like, ha ha, chase me, chase me. Mm. And he ran into the street and got mm. hit full on by a car. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. It was probably one of the most, you know, difficult experiences that I've ever gone through. And the guilt that consumed me over that was phenomenal. But I... I truly, I didn't know a, a better way at the time. And I took time away from corporate and I said, I've got to do something else. And I think I have to do something to help dogs and help people so that stuff like this doesn't happen because it shouldn't have to happen. And I was living in San Francisco and I stumbled across literally, like I knew nothing about the dog training industry. I literally stumbled across Gene Donaldson's Academy for Dog Trainers. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll try this thing out. Like not even knowing, you know, how profound it was that it was in my like neck of the woods in my virtual backyard. And it was a life-changing experience for me. Not only did it teach me and put me on a fully different trajectory for my career, but it made me a better human being because I understood how punishment and reinforcement works in all animals. So I started treating people very differently too. Wow. Yeah. And so I feel like, uh, you know, that was a profound change in my life. And so that's where I started out. And I'm still a, a statistical geek, but I much prefer to put my statistics towards working with dogs and tracking all sorts of data that happens when we're working with dogs, almost from a applied behavior analysis perspective, right? Wow. I think all the time how crazy it is that we don't eat, all get a semester of behavioral science at school or, I, or, I or an hour. Insane. I think that's insane because it's transformational, not just for our dogs and our cats and our horses and our rabbits and our whatever, mm -hmm. but just in the way we communicate with people. Yeah, absolutely. I had a similar experience finding KPA kind of on a whim. I think I could have just as easily gone to a dog training school where they would have had me do very different kinds of things, but I found me the Karen too. Pryor Academy out of luck. And I just felt like, oh, this is the way the world is supposed to be. Like we can't, con I can't control the whole world around me, but I can control so much about my dog's life in a way that could make his life better. 
And that's right. that, that like makes so much sense. Like, why did I not know about this? Right. Before? Why did I like, not know about this in like the third or fourth grade? Yeah. And um, I wish it was part of school's curriculums because I think it would make us a better world. And it's so crazy to me that dog training is, I think for many people, similarly, it can be so transformative. I like, I never would have thought that dog training would affect my entire worldview to the point of it being like, you know, my, my like philosophy and religion of choice. Like I would have been yeah. like, that is a crazy person 10 years ago or more, whatever, 15 years ago. Yet that That's is, right. that is who I am. So you were lucky enough to go to Jean Donaldson's program. And what made you does, I, I'm, it's interesting that you talk about being like a, a numbers nerd, because I could see how that could help you if you're working with someone with separ- whose dog has separation anxiety. But tell me how you began this specialty. Well, I mean, I always tell people separation anxiety chose me. I did not choose it because who in their right mind would choose separation anxiety as a specialty, right? <laughs> I understand how slow it is and how hard it is and how challenging it is for all three, the dog, the client, and the trainer, and for that matter, the veterinarian or anybody else that's you know in that triage relationship of working with a separation anxiety dog. But I had graduated from the academy I think I was only a few days post-graduation. And at that time, it was still a brick-and-mortar school. So the San Francisco SPCA would refer things out to their graduates. And I got a call. I literally got a call. And the woman said, hi, I got your name and number from the SPCA in San Francisco. And... I really need some help. And I was like, oh, great. And I was actually, I remember this so well. I was with a colleague of mine and we were walking around Target. I remember talking to this woman so specifically. Her dog is named Guinness. And she said, my dog has separation anxiety and we we adopted him, you know, however long ago. And we just are having all sorts of problems whenever we try to leave him alone. And I was really transparent with her. And I said, gosh, you know, I'm a really green trainer. And while I understand the principles of working with separation anxiety, I think I'd rather you find someone that, you know, is a little more seasoned than I am. And she burst into tears and she said, okay, you know, crying. She said, that's fine. But if you give me some names, will you, do you know that they will actually take on separation anxiety because you are the seventh trainer that I've called and none of them are willing to work with separation anxiety. And she was bawling. And it struck me so hard because I thought the first thing I thought was this is a resilient woman that is advocating for her dog and she's not giving up. She's going to find someone that's going to help her with this problem. The second thing that I thought was I would probably give her two or three names and they would not help her because I didn't know anybody back then that was working with separation anxiety. So I said, I am happy to help you, but I want you to know that we're going to kind of learn about this process, you know, together. And as long as you're okay with that and you're okay with me punting to a behaviorist or someone else, if we run into trouble, 
I'm happy to support you. And she was like so happy and whatever. And it was, you know, it was really lovely. So I started working with them. And I remember back then trying to make it as fun as possible because separation anxiety training is not particularly fun. You know, it's certainly not like teaching tricks or or anything. But we used to tell Guinness to go to the pub. And the pub was his little like area that he would stay in when he, you know, Guinness obviously being the beer. Genius. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. And he would go to his pub and we made fairly swift progress and i was like wow check me out i'm a superstar i'm fixing separation anxiety well turns out retrospectively looking at that case guinness had only been adopted or actually had been found at a desolate parking lot and he was grungy and grimy and you know not in great medical condition and so forth And so it turns out he probably would have recovered quite on his own once he acclimated to this new home. The second separation anxiety case that I took crashed and burned full on like nosedive, terrible results. I was like, what am I doing wrong? I did the same thing that I did with Guinness. But at that point, what was happening so that people in the San Francisco Bay Area is a pretty close-knit environment. And, you know, people heard, oh, Melena did a great job with the separation anxiety case. Let's refer to her. And I was starting to get flooded with these cases. And I thought, okay, I could do the same thing that, that most people were doing with Guinness's mom and say, here you go. Here's two or three more names. Good luck with that. Or I could start to research and try and, and open up my, you know, thoughts about how we could help these dogs. And so with every client that I got, honestly, for the first, I don't know, three to five years, I was like, I just want you to know, we're going to try various things. I don't know exactly I just what, what will fix it for your dog. I just want to be transparent because I'm not really sure. And I was charging virtually nothing at the time, too, because I didn't feel qualified to charge a a tremendous amount. So I learned case after case after case after case. And, you know, those first two cases turned into, you know, 10 and 10 turned into, you know, 50 and 50 turned into a couple of hundred. And I mean, I've just I've been working now for 20 years with separation anxiety cases and I've seen hundreds and hundreds of dogs. And the wonderful thing about working with separation anxiety is that every dog is an individual. Every case is unique in their environment. Every owner and, and the guardians are always, you know, different in how they work and how they deal with things. And so like I said, boy, it did not uh, come up as a choice for me to work with separation anxiety. It wow. really chose me. So here's a super basic question. What is separation anxiety? That's a super basic question, but it's not as basic as one might think. And I'm so glad you asked because I think it's really important for the general public, obviously trainers, but even just the dog guardians of the universe to realize that separation anxiety is truly akin 
to many fears, phobias, and panic issues. You know, some people are afraid of flying. Some people are afraid of public speaking. Some people are afraid of heights. And some dogs are afraid of being alone. And one of the things that all of these fears, phobias, and anxieties have in common is that to the observer, they seem irrational, right? I'm afraid of spiders and I'm serious. Like the most minuscule spider, I'm like, ah, husband, come, you know, save me from a, you know, one millimeter spider. And, uh, and that's obviously irrational, but it's not irrational to me. Yeah. It's I mean, as real as possible. I me. notice always when, with people, whenever you hear what someone else is anxious about, it always seems silly, right? It's like, how could you silly. be like, that, whatever your example is, it almost always seems seems ridiculous. Until it's your own personal right. anxiety. And then you're like, there's nothing ridiculous about this whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember I was talking to a client or a potential client one time. And I was using the example of, well, let's say you were afraid of snakes. And she said, you know what, actually, can we not talk about snakes? She's like, I'm so deathly afraid of snakes that. And I, and I, I remember feeling that same thing. Like that is just the dumbest, <laughs> you know, fear ever. Cause how often do you come across snakes? You know, if you go to a vivarium or something, maybe, but you know, it's, you know, and she was not living in it. She was living in a very urban area where she was not coming across snakes. And I thought, wow. But then I thought about my own spider phobia and I was like, oh, I really want people to know that these are intrinsic genetic heritable fears right they come built in and there's a reason that people have these insane snake phobias even though they've never encountered a snake in their life genetically eons ago there was a reason to be afraid of snakes yes you know there's a book i'll think of the name of the book in a second but where it talked about how Oh, I think it's Zubiquity. Have you heard of the Zubiquity oh, movement? No, I haven't. There's this whole movement of vets and doctors working together in order to mine each other's knowledge, basically. Oh, which, of I'm course, all over this. Yes. I can't wait to look into this. I think it was in the book Zubiquity where they explained how some people are actually afraid of eating. And it's not; it doesn't necessarily have to do with getting fat. That some people actually have a fear of eating. And if you think about it, for many millennia, for us, if we were getting food, we were also at risk of becoming someone's food, right? That's right. So it it's actually kind of makes sense that it's something to be fearful of. Just like you know, one time we had a dog we were working with who was scared of flags waving overhead, like such a random fear. But you know probably some wolf ancestors of his, you know, it would have made sense if they were scared of a noise of something rattling above them. Right. Sure. Yeah. That means some sort of avian prey animal. right? And being alone is something that humans can understand being scared of. Absolutely. So is as irrational as it seems to us, because we're like, I always come back. My dog should know this by now. Well, yeah, I'm of an age that I should have figured out by this many years of my life that spiders aren't going to kill me, but I haven't. So what is separation anxiety? (laughs) 
<laughs> it's so, a natural fear. Actually, it is genetically required in some ways because puppies, if they are, you know, for some reason threatened or separation separated from the litter and they are in a situation where they don't have the mom or the dad or the other puppy siblings to be able to help protect them, there, there's a reason, a heredity reason that they vocalize, that they urinate or defecate, and even that they start, you know, creating, ripping stuff up to appease their concern and spread their sense so that they can be relocated. So actually, inherently, puppies have sort of a version of separation anxiety when they come out of the box. And they're supposed to. Now, the problem is when they go from puppyhood and start to move forward, it's important that they have this predisposition. But when they don't gradually learn that safety when alone is okay, then that's such it an interesting, such an interesting way to put it. When is there a formula that we could give our clients to tell them when something is or isn't separation anxiety, or is you mean particularly from is it an art? Well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think sometimes people will say their puppy has separation anxiety where I think that seems like an extreme term. But again, like, who am I to judge anyone else's anxiety? Right. I love that you asked this question because I am so much of a proponent of if your dog is showing whatever signs of distress, however mild or moderate or severe in appearance when left alone, when, you know, we're specifically talking about being left alone here. I feel very strongly that it is really worthwhile to give them a soft place to land and to go through the motions of teaching them that alone time is safe. A lot of dogs, probably the majority of dogs, end up crying it out and then they learn that oh well I guess nothing's wrong but do we have to let them cry it out do we have to let them go through all that distress before they learn that nothing bad happens when I'm alone we can teach them that in gradual increments and keep them from ever experiencing that extreme distress or even mild distress, which we know physiologically and psychologically can be damaging in the long run. What I, what I try and explain to people is that the behavior of, for instance, scratching at the door or crying, chewing on the couch, the behavior might go away, but if you haven't addressed the underlying issue, it's likely that, you know, it's going to come out a different hole in the colander. Well, you nailed it when you told me your opening story. That barking, I'm guessing that dog that was separation anxiety that you were working with, that dog probably didn't bark anymore. But now he's biting people. And that's also an adjunct of, of punishment use. But unless 
And it's interesting that you say this too, because a lot of people contact us and they say, oh my gosh, my dog is barking when I leave him and I'm going to, you know, the landlord sent me a letter. I don't know what to do, blah, 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 blah. And I need the barking to stop. Well, I know you need the barking to stop, but in order to get the barking to stop in a humane manner with the dog's welfare intact, we need to address the anxiety, not the barking. Also, and I'm guessing this has come up probably many times in your career, sometimes the dog you have is not the dog that's right for your life. That's right. That is a really difficult thing as a dog trainer to say to a client, and I've only had to say that a few times, and I check myself because it's such a scary thing to say because everybody thinks every problem should have a solution in every situation. But frankly, I think there are some dogs who need to live with someone who's going to be home a lot of the time. Just like some dogs should not live on a busy street. Some dogs shouldn't be in a major city. Some dogs shouldn't have to, you know, climb three flights of stairs. (laughs) That's right. Right. Although, you know, to your point though, because I, I know the kind of bond that I create with the dogs that are in my life. You know, if someone is in love with the dog that is wrong for their life kind of thing. Maybe they need to change their life. They need to change their life potentially. And I don't mean, those don't even have to be tremendous, you know, horrifying, you know, scary big changes. But boy, if if anybody and everybody here learns this one thing today, separation anxiety is an issue that can be fixed. It's not going to happen fast. It's not going to happen overnight. So tell me a little bit about Tell me a little bit about your process because for those of you who are not familiar with Milena, you've been working remotely with clients for a long time and I'd love to hear more about your process with working with people and also I would like to hear about your new your new course but tell me about how it works if somebody signs up with you sure uh, after they've read your book I hope it should be that should be step one I think (laughs) speaking of the book which is called which is called training separation anxiety and dogs I like I like when things aren't like cutesy in titles by the way I like you like just get to the point cutesy title no I like it I didn't go with it no (laughs) this is what this book is about (laughs) does not need a subtitle (laughs) yeah yeah I have a new book coming out late this year and it is basically the advancement the advanced you know protocols and techniques and principles for separation anxiety because I have learned a lot in the last you know handful of years since that book came out so It's going to be, I hope, a big eye-opener for a lot of people. So somebody wants to work with you, what's the process? Okay, so what happens, and I've been doing remote training since about 2008, and the reason it struck me as important to do is that in the beginning, I used to go over to people's houses, meet with them, talk with them, meet the dog, etc., And then I would log my huge eight millimeter tape camera with me. That's how long I've been doing this. And I would leave my video camera at their house and I would ask them to video every time they did the exercises that I asked them to do. Well, 
one of the main things that was so inefficient about that process was that I would go at the end of the week and collect these tapes and then watch retrospectively what the dog was doing. What happened in 2008 was we had the appropriate technology. I, I think we had it earlier than that. I just wasn't savvy enough to use it. We had the appropriate technology to be able to watch dogs live. And it was a game changer for separation anxiety, let me tell you, because before I would collect those tapes and then I'd say, oh, we undershot or we overshot. Oh, we pushed too hard. Oh, we didn't push enough. And so we were constantly bouncing around trying to get it right. And the poor dog was clueless during the process, right? Mm. Then I started to use technology and I realized we can watch that dog live and we can adjust literally in the moment if we need to. It became revolutionary, truly, I think, for separation anxiety dogs. And the difference in our success rates was pretty crazy and phenomenal. Wow. You know, it goes back to dog training of you, you started to be able to give feedback and with a lot better timing. Absolutely. Right? That's exactly, that's a perfect, perfect way to say it. Timing is everything in dog training or in communications, et cetera. And the way that we work now, we do an initial assessment live online with our clients. So an initial assessment. Are they sending you videos? Is it a call over Zoom or whatever? It's a call over Zoom. And we spend, you know, an hour or more with the client and explaining what, you know, everything about separation anxiety. And then we say, okay, I'm going to have you leave in the normal manner within which you leave. And I'm going to have your text at the ready. And I'm going to call you back as soon as I have seen what I need to see. And for some dogs, that is like 10 seconds. And for other dogs, that's 10 minutes. Okay, wait, so hold on. All right, do they usually send you footage of the dog beforehand then? Not a lot not of people do. So okay. our, fir- our very first session, when people contact us, our very first session is a phone call and we just explain what we do, how we do it. And, you know, if they're interested, then we go forward. So you sit down with someone in a, like a video call, then you have the people leave the room while your video is still going. You're watching the dog That's and right. then you text or call the person and say, okay, I've seen enough. Come back in. Exactly. That's okay. exactly right. In my opinion, that is the last time that that dog needs to go through any sort of distress. Mm. Uh, and we do not, it's not like I say, okay, leave for 30 minutes and we'll see, we'll watch your dog screaming for, you know, 28 of those, you know, it's typically like, I need to see where that panic point is because if the dog panics at one second, I don't need to see any more. If the dog doesn't panic in one second and doesn't start to even whine until five minutes, well, I'd like to see a little more to see if we don't have to start out so, 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 so gradually. There's something kind of funny about your job, which is like, you watch people's dogs while they leave their houses. (laughs) It is kind of funny, isn't it? What did you do today? Well, I watched this person's dog in their living room. (laughs) Exactly. While I was sitting at my 
computer. <laughs> While their people pretended to go out. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It is kind of funny. So then the people come back and do you suggest a program? Do you outline, you know, I want to work with you this many times over this much of a period? So what we do, which I think is one of the things that differentiates us from a lot of people out there, we go ahead with, you know, assuming, of course, that we see that the dog has separation anxiety and that the folks want to work with us. What we do is we work with people five days a week. And we start them off on a four-week commitment. And we, when I say five days a week, what that entails is we want them to take two days off a week. And this can be consecutive or split. It's not important particularly. We write out those exercises for the clients. And then they observe their dog because we have technology like Zoom and you know, external cameras and things like that, where they can watch their dog while they're doing those exercises from their phone if they want to. And they create some notes. And based on those notes, we create the very next day's set of exercises. And we call those missions, their mission for the day, if you will. And then once a week, we meet them again live and watch their dog. I do want to mention that four weeks is not a magic number. Most dogs are not fixed in four weeks with their separation anxiety, but it allows us to start building a foundation. What is the number one thing that you recommend to people when they're first dealing with trying to help their dogs be alone? The number one thing is, and I'm not, I know that this is hard, but creativity plays a big role in this. The number one thing, and certainly now in our challenging times with COVID, is to create a contract with your dog that says, I'm not going to leave you alone for longer than you can handle while I do this training. That doesn't necessarily need to be the individual owner. It can be a friend, a neighbor, a Mm -hmm. college student, as you mentioned when, you know, earlier, it could be daycare or, Mm -hmm. you know, other paid resources, but just that during that training, that dog is not going to be alone for longer than he or she can handle. And what that does, it's actually a two-sided contract. So you're saying, I'm not going to put you in a situation that makes you feel unsafe because the moment you're in a situation that makes you feel unsafe, my training is going to break down. But there's the other side of the contract too. The dog is basically making their side of the contract by saying, I'm not going to bark, pee, poop, destroy stuff, blah, 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 blah. Because I feel safe now. I am not, you're only leaving me for one minute or five minutes or 17 minutes or whatever it is. That is still safe for me. And so I'm not going to mess with your house. My two action, action steps, the way I think of it when, I, when I'm working with clients who have separate, whose dogs have separation anxiety. First of all is I tell people to stop thinking about it as their dog and to start thinking about it as a dog that they need to help. And that means reaching out beyond 
themselves. This isn't my dog and only I am the one who can help. Because when you have a dog with separation anxiety, like you've been saying, you can't let the dog have a panic attack. It needs to be like, mm-hmm. you're never going to have a panic attack again after right now, because every time your dog has a panic attack, it's like the groove in its brain of panic attacks is getting worn in. Like, like I was saying with the, that client who I did not have success with, I was saying, look, you live near NYU. Let's find some teenagers who right. come over and be with your dog. I know people who bring their, get their dogs groomed every week just because it's like they need somewhere to, someone who'll watch their dog. That's right. And also think about dog walking as not something that, that you can hire a dog walker to not walk your dog. Like you could hire a dog walker to just be with your dog. Actually at School That's for right. the Dogs, we call our, our dog walking service, we call it buddying. Because it's not always about. Oh, I love that. It's not always about walking. Sometimes <laughs> it's about just needing companionship, uh, needing a warm body. So that's my the one my kind of number one suggestion is just to think about think about who can help and why you need people to help. The other thing I suggest is to think about when you're feeding your dog. If you want your dog to feel good about being alone, it might be helpful to help your dog create good associations with being alone. And this more applies to people who are not dealing with separation anxiety, but who are trying to prevent separation anxiety. If you're feeding your dog and then leaving the room, your dog is going to have better associations with you leaving the room. Your dog probably doesn't need to have more good associations with you being in the room. But you want to be like, it's great when I see his back because when the human leaves the room, that means I get my really good stuff. Sure. I, I will say that there are pitfalls and I I don't want to, you know, derail our, our discussion to go into those. But there are pitfalls with using food as the associative property because a lot of dogs won't eat when someone walks out of the room. True. A lot of dogs will eat, but will still be conflicted or nervous about consuming their dinner or their Kong or their whatever. I always like to uh, liken it to if I'm depressed or anxious or worried, I can happily cry through my bowl of mint chip ice cream. And that doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm not feeling those anxious feelings. So I guess I think about it more in terms of like puppies when you're working on socialization and you're trying to help them make associations with all the things you want them to know about. Of course, you want your dog to feel good about being around you. And, you know, you should be giving your dog lots of treats and praise and hugs and play and da-da-da. And all that associate with you. But when you're feeding your dog, if it's not a bad idea to help your dog associate you not paying attention to him. That's right. That's beautiful, particularly for puppies. Yeah. And another thing that I suggest with, with people who have puppies, especially who don't have like a long history of, of having these panic attacks is to like mix up your routine when you're leaving the house so that, you know, you're not always picking up your keys, putting on your shoes and going out, but that sometimes, you know, you pick up your keys and then go sit on the couch for, and watch TV or so that your dog doesn't have these predictors that is stressing him out long before you leave. So you said you normally work with clients for a month contract. Do you have clients who keep you then on like retainer for years or do you usually have kind of, (laughs) I mean, is this like, is this like therapy (laughs) where you just keep going? On occasion it is. It's variable. And so when people ask me, you know, and it's a very common question and it's an appropriate one, 
why, you know, they'll say, how long will it take to get my dog over separation anxiety? The only definitive answer that I can give people is to say, think in terms of months, not weeks. Okay, fair enough. Uh, because, you know, for some dogs, it could be a, just a couple of months. For other dogs, it could be a year or more. And as we know, anxiety is is really, really challenging for all sorts of different mammals, right? And for some, they can learn really well and really quickly and learn that, that absences are safe. And for others, the learning process is just a slower process for them because they're just riddled with anxiety all the time. So the course for professionals is side note was not something that I ever even thought of doing but when I was telling you about how I got into separation anxiety and then how I started getting all these referrals I got to a point where I was like I need another trainer to work with me but I don't know anybody that I can refer to that does the things the way that I do them and so I was recommended to me that I hire an apprentice and then I thought oh my gosh I'm so busy that apprentice is going to be you know their dance card is going to be full in a in a couple of weeks and then someone said well maybe hire two apprentices and then I went well if I've got to train two apprentices maybe I should train several <laughs> and I never in a million years thought I would train more than a couple of people and here we are a couple of years later um, you know, over a hundred people all wow. over the world. And That's really how we started our professional program also was we needed more trainers and, uh, and we realized that the best way to get more trainers was to train them ourselves. But you also have a, a program for clients. That's right. Uh, and what is that on, called? It's called Mission Possible. There's a lot of misinformation out there. And I really wanted people to be able to get the right information in a self-paced online course where they could sort of, you know, do it themselves. It is a lot easier to have a trainer hold your hand and do it for you, but not everybody is in that position to be able to do that. Yeah. And I totally understand that. Well, it's a difference and between working out on your own and having a personal trainer. It sure is. And I who would, who personal, wouldn't want a personal trainer? I know. And I do. I have a personal trainer for the gym. Well, not right now, but, you know. And, yeah, I know how to run on a treadmill and how to do sit-ups. But my personal trainer definitely sort of sculpts what I need to do in a way that I would never do on my own. So yeah. you're right. You're it's, right. And it's, that's huge. But one question that I'm getting over and over is what happens after COVID-19 and I have to go back to work? Is my dog going to freak out? And I know there's not one answer to this question because every dog is an individual, like like you've said, and every situation is different. Yeah. But are there any like any action items people can start working on <laughs> if they have a dog? Yeah, tell me. I think there really are. Obviously, if a dog has a predisposition towards separation anxiety or already had separation anxiety, this situation is or has potentially exacerbated that. But for those dogs that have never experienced separation anxiety or don't really have any sort of predisposition for that, I think that just keeping the dog, sort of keeping the wheels greased, okay? Taking out the recycling, 
taking a walk for 15 or 20 minutes without the dog, having separation on occasion, minimally three or four times a week is going to make it a lot better for that dog. So they see and realize and experience that when you leave the house, nothing bad happens. I wish, and I, and I have done several webinars on this in the last several weeks, I wish we could get the word out to people more broadly that if they were just doing some minimal absences with those dogs that never had separation anxiety before, we could keep them sort of tuned up, if you will, for their absences when people return to work. The other thing that I would suggest though, there's a lot of daycares and dog walkers and pet sitters that have been significantly affected by this because they obviously have not been able to work. Get in touch with your dog walker or pet sitter or daycare professional now and buy a 10 session package or whatever it is because they will either make it through this or not from a business standpoint. But if you can support them now, you will be on the forefront for if you need someone to come in and walk your dog one or two times a day to break up that day, you'll, you'll be at the top of their list. And I really suggest that, I, not just because they're economically being so impacted, but because I want you to be the one, you as the people we're talking to here, to be the one that's not scrambling when you go back to work and two days later you realize your dog really needs a couple of breaks in the day because he's kind of struggling, I don't want you to be on the bottom of somebody's wait list. Very smart. Where do you stand on medication? Because it certainly plays into a lot of training plans, I'm sure. It does. It does. And I will make the caveat that I, I'm not a vet, so I can't advise mm -hmm. on medications making that caveat. So I, I can't actually advise on specific medications. But I do want everyone to know that, you know, after doing this for 20 years and seeing a lot of dogs on medication and a lot of dogs not on medication, I am very pro medication. And there's a great blog out there, by the way, by Dr. Jen Summerfield that talks about the fact that this separation anxiety and some other behavior issues too, it's sort of like a behavioral emergency, right? So if you, if someone came into the doctor and said, I've got this gaping wound that seems to be starting to get potentially infected, like the, the, the doctor wouldn't say, let's wait till sepsis sets in before we give you antibiotics, right? Like, let's not just let the problem get worse and worse and worse before we intervene with medications. And I feel like using a medication for a separation anxiety dog can be a welfare issue, quite frankly. This is not something to mess around with. Yes, I want to create, you know, management arrangements and, and, the and arrange the environment, but I don't want that dog to feel that miserable ever if I well, the, avoid it. The way I think about medication with dogs is that first we should try it and rearrange the environment as much as possible, but sometimes it's not possible in the right. amount of time that is going to make it so the dog doesn't keep having panic attacks. And also with some dogs, they are so stressed out or whatever you want yeah. to call it, that, that there's not a lot of learning that's going to be happening. 
you know, anxiety and hip learning. It, it yeah. Absolutely. And we know that that's not a, Oh, maybe if they're anxious, they won't learn as well. That is like, been scientifically very well documented that anxiety inhibits learning uh it's just so, a natural fact so uh, if you have I a dog that's that you, too stressed out oh, go ahead right and i love that you talk about the management aspect because i think from a technical perspective medication is part of management mm -hmm. like we're managing the internal setting of events for the behavior right so it's just, a, it is a management tool, but I think it's so important to relieve the potential suffering for these dogs. Now, and, you know, and I just want to add that we have, and someone's mentioning Behavior Vets NYC, that's run by Dr. Elise Christensen and Dr. Andrew. Oh, Hugh. Elise Christensen is so great. And yeah. I think, thank God for, you know, the handful of excellent veterinary behaviors that exist there are literally only something like 60 in all of the but U.S. 60 some odd, yeah. And it's a wonderful specialty. I give them so much credit. You know, it's really being like a psychopharmacologist for a dog, except, you know, a psychiatrist who specializes in medication can at least have a conversation with their patient about how they're feeling. Okay. Whereas, you know, veterinary behaviorists are trying to figure this stuff out without conversations and with many different kinds of species at very different times of their lives. Anyway, I think it's an incredible specialty. And I do know some people who are, you know, against giving dogs medication and or maybe don't think it's right for every situation. And I just wanted to give an example, though. I don't think she'll mind me mentioning her. Uh, my, my friends, Anna and her husband, Alan, actually Anna Oshoff, she's one of our trainers, you know, they didn't want to go the route at least right away of giving their dog medication. She has severe anxiety about going outside and she's okay being left alone. They wanted to see what else they could do. And they restructured their lives in order to make it possible for this dog to not have to go outside on the city streets in New York City. They take regular trips to the suburbs where they she can run around. She spends you know time with out of town when they go out of town. Like she has the opportunities to be in less stressful environments. But when they are in New York City, they have a stroller for her if they have to go outside. They have a backpack for her if they have to go outside. When they come see me, that I live two blocks away, they'll drive so that she doesn't have to walk down the street. They have an indoor potty for her. And, oh. you know, like in some ways, like it might seem a little bit extreme, but like it's also just wonderful. I think it's that, amazing. They, that it's they amazing. have figured out a way to make her life possible. And I think that, uh, it's, it's commendable. It is. It really is. And I, I actually have a blog on the top, I think it's 15. I, I can't remember now, but top 15 reasons why people are not interested or willing or wanting to use meds. And I did a lot of research and took a lot of polls on like my Facebook page and stuff like that, you know, saying, what are the reasons that you would not want to use meds? And the majority of the responses, even though there's literally those 15 very poignant individual reasons the majority of the responses were i don't want to dope up my dog i don't want to have i love my dog just as she is or he is and i don't want a dopey dog and if i could even ever express to people that that's not the goal of medication that is not your dog should not be much if any different on the meds and if he is different 
if he's really lethargic, although, you know, the first week or so, there's some transient lethargy on some of these meds, but if he's really lethargic or acting dopey, it's probably the wrong med or the wrong dose and it should be addressed. But being able to lower that anxiety just enough to be able to gain purchase on the problem, I think is really, really huge. Thoughts on CBD for pets in general? I do. Right now, we do not have research on how CBD affects dogs. And quite frankly, we have not all that much great research on CBD for human beings. We have a lot of anecdotal information and quite frankly, a lot of positive anecdotal information from the human usage side. But dogs actually have I can't remember the exact number, but it's a multiple, multiple, multiple times the cannabinoid receptors that human beings do. And while we all say, well, I would never give my dog THC because we know that that is harmful for them. CBD products do contain some traces of THC. So I really feel like the research is way too preliminary. I don't think we're there yet. And I just feel that I want to be very safe with our dogs when we administer any product, you know, anything at all. I want to be very safe with our dogs. And the limited research that is available does not show very much, if any, impact on anxiety-related issues. I do want to say to anyone who might be listening, if you've considered giving your dog medication or if it's something that you've talked to your regular vet about, you should still really consider consulting with a veterinary behaviorist because I find many vets just don't know a whole lot about behavioral medication and veterinary behaviorists, like I said, there are not that many of them, but it's a huge difference in their training and they can be very expensive. (laughs) It can be very expensive to go to a veterinary behaviorist. However, I know at least some of them will do phone consults with a vet. The attending vet, correct. And that can be at least a way to to tap into some of their knowledge. Here's a question that came in. How do you define success at a given point to progress in the training steps? Let's say you're able to step outside the baby gate or door, whatever phase you're on, out of sight. The dog isn't whining or barking or anything, but body language-wise isn't totally relaxed either. Good for you for being able to spot Yeah, great job. Lying not on their bed, watching the door and not sleeping. Let's say he can hold this for 30 plus minutes. Is that a sign of progress longer or to progress longer? Or does that mean we should go back to a short time, like 10 seconds and progress only when the dog is lying on their bed and fully relaxing? What about a slight whimper and a down state, but no other big stress signs? Where's the line of, okay, he's slightly okay. Keep progressing versus move to I would love to hear your thoughts on this, Milena. But I should say that whether we're talking about separation anxiety or teaching, you know, a half decent sit stay, you can always go back to Karen Pryor calls it going back to kindergarten, right? You can always toss your dog an easy one, no matter what it is you're training. And I think you should sometimes just to be an extra generous teacher. I so agree with you. We tend to be very generous. And we toggle or, you know, randomize so that we get easy wins on a regular basis. 
And I, as you said so beautifully, being a generous teacher is important. With regard to this specific question, I hate to have to do this, Sydney, but that is an it depends question. So some dogs, but hopefully I can clarify this for you a bit, Sydney. Some dogs will yawn a couple of times And I know from my initial assessment or our further reassessments, I know that that yawning will lead to whining and that whining will lead to barking and that barking will lead to howling. And so I know, okay, when I see those lip licks or yawns, that is the beginning of the downward trajectory for that dog. Other dogs for 30 minutes are sort of tolerating or however long, you you mentioned 30 minutes, are are just, you know, tolerating. Maybe not be yet relaxed, but they are doing okay. So it's really going to be very dependent on that individual. You know, work with the learner in front of you is the thing that, you know, we always hear from people like Susan Friedman. I'm, I'm very impressed that you notice the body language. It's not that the body language is not totally relaxed either. And that I think is important to remember, but it's not about the individual session. It's about watching the trend within which the dog is progressing or moving, I should say. So if today you do a 20-minute absence and the dog is not barking, not doing all those things that isn't looking perfectly relaxed, and if then you know by next week you've got a similar 20-minute absence and you're like, look at that, she was actually relaxed for the first three or four minutes this time, even though she didn't stay super relaxed, loose, wiggly body language the whole time. So you want to see that trend moving in the right direction, obviously, as opposed to the inappropriate direction. Angelina says, if you aren't using food as the associative property when leaving the dog alone, what else do you incorporate instead of food, treat dispensing toys, et cetera? I don't think you were saying food should not be used. I think you were just saying it's part of part of the equation or am I wrong? Actually, funny enough, I don't use food. I, I, oh, well, let me start out by saying food is the most efficient and effective medium to training dogs. And I will shout that from the mountaintops every day of my life. But for separation anxiety, I do think it's very interesting. And this is actually a long answer. And I, so I can't, I, I don't want to take up everybody's time and go into it too much detail. But I think what happens is that food oftentimes becomes just a distraction tool and the Kong gets emptied and then the dog starts pacing, panting, whining, vocalizing, you know, doing whatever destructive behavior. And all we've done is delay the Mm -hmm. onset of the anxiety even if we've done that, because some dogs are just equally anxious while they're eating, but they're so hardwired to eat that they will eat. One of the things about, instead of using food toys, is getting our dogs really sort of bored with the process. We should be creating, and this is you know also a long discussion, but we should be creating these exercises of say 20 to 30 minutes a day, comprised of you know 10 or 12 or 15, actual absences or less 
it, where we're just, we're coming and going. And the dog, maybe the first day is like, uh-oh, what's going on? Why? What? Uh-oh, uh-oh. And then you return. And they're like, yeah, that wasn't so bad. Uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs> and by like day three or four or ten or whatever, the dog's like, oh, this is the stupidest game that mom plays. She keeps coming and going and coming and going. It's the most boring thing ever. I think I'll just nap. Or I'll just lie here and, you know, just look out the window or whatever. And that's our goal. And it, I will say there are very few times in the life of a dog or in dog training that we're, our goal is to bore the dog. But this is one of them where we want to bore that dog. We want it to be the most boring thing ever. So, you know, I appreciate this question. I only reintroduce or introduce feeding toys at this point in time after the dog has learned to be alone for some appreciable amount of time. And even then, I don't know that it's perfectly necessary as long as they are enjoying, relaxing, and or, you know, sufficiently tolerating their absence. But again, use food for training in everything, please. Uh, I, 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 it's, that is a mantra that I will never, ever back down from. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for talking with me. This has been really fun. Thank you. I've learned a lot. And Milena, I hope that we can talk again sometime. sometime I think we should. I think we really should. You can learn more about Milena on her website, milenadimartini.com. That's D-E-M-A-R-T-I-N-I. You can also get 10% off of her Mission Possible course using the coupon code SFTD. Thanks so much for listening. You can support School for the Dogs podcast by subscribing, leaving a five-star review, telling your friends, and shopping in our online store. Learn more about School for the Dogs and sign up for lots of free training resources on our website, schoolforthedogs.com.